All right. Well, it's it's uh, good uh, good to be here with you again. It's uh, been a, a couple months since I was down here last, and I'm glad to be here this morning. And I'd I'd like to ask you to um, to help me with uh, the reading of the passage we're going to look at this morning. So I know that Dave just had you all sit down, but if you guys wouldn't mind just standing with me one more time, I know it kind of ups and down a little bit. But I'd like to, uh, if you wouldn't mind just reading uh, with me as we read through this kind of collectively as a group, um, this passage that's on the screen, Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Let's read it together. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Great. Thanks. Go ahead and have a seat. Jesus, we, uh, we invite you here this morning. I guess in some ways, uh, obviously already knowing that you are with us and that you're present here, we, we invite you to speak to us. We invite your words to uh, transform us here this morning, that we would be challenged by listening in on the teaching that you had for your disciples some 2,000 years ago, that we might learn from you and apply your truth here to our lives today here in San Jose. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to start this morning by setting a, a little bit of context here, and I'm going to kind of I'm going to do it in two different ways and look at two aspects of context. And really, context is really just a way in which we try to understand the times and the settings of what's going on, what we're looking at, so that we recognize that what we're reading is not something that um, you know was necessarily you know just written for us, like it was just transcribed for us last night, and all of a sudden we have it today and. It makes complete sense for us to. This is something that was written a long, long time ago, an interaction and a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And so the first context that we want to set here is really basically the setting of what we're, what we're looking at. This is, as Dave mentioned, is the Sermon on the Mount. It, it encompasses a, a three different chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's really writing to his, his disciples here. As they're, um, most likely they're sitting... Maybe up on a mountainside, and there's some other people because Jesus was such a, a a crazy historical and and um and, and movie star type of figure in those days for people. They just everybody was attracted to him. Like, who is this guy? He's got all these crazy teachings, and he's he, he's he's an amazing person to listen to talk and watch how he interacts with people, and he challenges religiosity and the status quo and all these things. So people are drawn towards him, and it's in this context that he's talking with these. This group of men up on this, this, this side of this mountain, other people listening in. And what he's doing here in this, uh, this uh, Sermon on the Mount series, in these three chapters, is really introducing something that he's talked about as his kingdom. Which is, is weird language for us today because we don't really use the term kingdom in our common vernacular today. We don't, maybe nation would be maybe more common to us. 
But kingdom is certainly not one of the words that we use quite often. And, but it was very clear for the people that he was writing to what a kingdom was. The, 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 the people of the uh, nation of Israel at that point in time were, were kind of surrounded in two, two aspects of kingdom at that time. They had been a part of what they had understood to be their, kind of, their kingdom, which they interpreted as God's kingdom for them, which was their national history, their past, you know, what God was going to do in the future for them as Jewish people. And then they were also part of this powerful, overwhelming kingdom that was known as the Roman Empire, that was just dominating uh, the time and the place of that day. And, and it's, so Jesus recognizes the fact that we're part of, you're part of these kingdoms that exist, these physical manifestations of reality. But what he says here in these passages is he, he's, indoctr- he's introducing his new kingdom, which is essentially his new ways, his way of operation, the, the way of true life in the midst of really the false kingdoms that exist physically. He's saying this is the true kingdom. This is the true way to live. This is true reality. And we've seen it previous in this passage, um, particularly the, ver- the, uh, the, the sections previous to this end- loving your enemies passage, where he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and eye for an eye. If you look at the, the patterns there, he's talking about, you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you, this is what the old kingdom, the old ways has said, these things, but, but now I'm telling you a new thing. This is the, the, the true kingdom that I'm about to teach to you. So he breaks it down from, you know, it's not just enough to say, hey, I never killed or murdered somebody, but he's talking about the issue of anger. It's not enough to say I've never committed adultery. It's, it's talking about the issue of lust. So he, he, he goes very deep into the heart and the nature of people. And to, uh, this morning, as, as we look at this, what we're going to find is Jesus is dealing heavily with the concept of unconditional love, which is not a very fun topic. Because we like to be conditional in our approach to love. And it's, and it's actually a very uncomfortable topic, and I'm the first to tell you that it's very uncomfortable for me to talk about it. Because it's self-indicting. Um, this is the initial context, the setting of what Jesus is writing here. And then look at what he says here in this first verse. Uh, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I have not really heard that said before. You and I probably don't hear that particular phrase used very often, except when we read the Scriptures. It's not like it's a part of our common understanding today. We don't have commercials that talk about loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, or we don't see it on the cover of magazines, or it's not like a, a little icon that's used to help sell soda or something. It's, it, it's something that was very... It was, it was it, it, um, intricately woven into the society that the, that the people here are um, they're a part of. And, and why is this now significant? Why, why does Jesus say this? And, and once again, I think the importance is, or the reason that we need to, to step back and look at this, is to understand the environment that these men lived in. Understand that this statement was a common assumption in the day because of their place in history. Because of what they had experienced. These men understood what a true enemy was. An individual or a group of people that wanted them dead that wanted their demise. Uh, These men had, these disciples that Jesus is speaking to, had and would continue to have enemies. They had enemies in the past. All the nations that just despised Israel, wanted them destroyed, ransacked the cities, took people into captivity, wanted their downfall. They had enemies in the present, which was modeled by the Roman Empire, which 
was somewhat of a, of a, of a, of a nice slavery of oppression. I mean, they still let them operate, but they were still dominated by this other force that really became seen as, as imposing their own rules and effects on their nation. And then also, they would have enemies in the future, both from the Jewish establishment and from the Roman establishment as the church begins. And all of the persecution, the martyrdom that will occur. So Jesus is very pointed in his approach here because he knows what their past has been, what their future, what their present is, and what their future will be. You will be confronted with enemies. And you know about that currently now, and it's going to get worse. And so this concept of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy had become a common assumption because of what all of their past and their present situations had brought them. And they used the scriptures to justify this. Um, if we look at uh, Leviticus 19.18, where does this concept of love your neighbor come into effect? In the Hebrew Scriptures, here, here in Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Interesting, your people, one of your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay? Um, where does this and hate your enemy come from? Where does that come from? It's, it's a, a really a pharisaical understanding, an interpretive understanding by the people of the day of the implications of 1918. Okay, we're to love those like us. We're to love our nation, our people, our, our immediate neighbors in our, in our Jewish culture, in our, in our way of life. But those that would try to oppress us and attack us, the implication that they had was our love is not worthy of them. Our love is only worthy to those that are like us. And that was an understanding that became a part of the context and the culture of, of, of what was being taught in those days. It was even enhanced in, later on in a couple of other psalms that, that King David wrote. Interesting, if you look at Psalm 139, verses 19 to 22. Pretty harsh words here. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. I know we have the kids in here too this morning. So this is kind of an interesting passage here. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. These are the words of David. Um, Psalm 140, verses 9 through 11. Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Let slanderers not be established in the land. May, may disaster hunt down men of violence. I mean, pretty harsh language here by the most respectable king in Israel. Just complete animosity and hatred towards his enemies. And so as a result, the Jewish people of the day had banded together and said, we will look unto the interests of our own. We will look out for the interests of our neighbor that thinks like us and is not trying to kill us. We will protect our own. We will love those who love us. We will love those who are like us. But we will hate those that are our enemies. And so you can see that the physical concept of enemy in, in, in this passage was much more significant to them than it, was, than it is to us today. It had much more meaning, much more substance to it. We don't really have these types of enemies that Israel had today. We live in a country that values freedom, democracy, and civil rights. We're set up on a system that tries to protect against injustice. doesn't get it perfect, obviously, but does its best to do so. And typically here in the U.S., we don't have a lot of people wishing us dead the way that the Israelites did. Now, of course, we do know because of 9-11, we've got this, this issue of Al-Qaeda and terrorism in our country where 
we have people that want for the demise of the, the nation of the United States of America and all the people that live within it. But we don't necessarily finding ourselves that we know of walking with and working with people that are a part of the Al-Qaeda network. At least we don't know at this point. We're not, we're not interacting with them on a continual basis and seeing the actual hatred and animosity um, that, that they have for us and that we would in, in turn feel justified in having towards them. So, so we do have this... Con- we understand in some respects the concept of enemy. We, we, we understand terrorism in some respect. And we also understand um, the, uh, the, the fact that there may be some people that we work with that are in your jobs or, or in the places of, of uh, uh, wherever you spend a majority of your time that uh, people that would want you to get fired from your job so they could take your spot or would just as soon wish that you would somehow drive your car off a cliff or something. I mean, this is negative. There's, there's people in our lives that you may have run into that have that feeling towards you. Would be a very clear indication of an enemy, someone that is against you. But not really, like I said, with the same force that these men understood the concept of enemy. Not the same type of oppression that they had dealt with. To put this into contemporary context today, it would be like for us if Al-Qaeda had taken over the United States and people left and right were being taken hostage and, and because we've got kids in here, I won't say this, but having horrible things done on television that we, we kind of understand what we're talking about there, right in front of national television and seeing things happen in just atrocious ways on our major networks. Um, and, and you can imagine the hatred, the fear and the outrage as people that we would have towards those inflicting damage on us as a nation. That might give us a better picture of the realities that these men were dealing with. Or the way that we felt after 9-11. Really the fear, the hatred of someone like Osama bin Laden. The the, the outcry as a nation against this individual that has been been seen really as as an individual of uh, of terror. And and actually is an individual of terror. Um, But it's in this context that Jesus goes on to say, now look at these words in verse 44, but I tell you, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But listen to this. But Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This was drastic language from the mouth of Jesus. The disciples had to be thinking, what, are you nuts? Love my enemies and not just love them, but pray for them? How ludicrous is this? It would be almost been like, if you remember that image back at 9-11 when, when, uh, when our president was standing down at ground zero and he kind of had his fist in the air and he was talking about, you know, whoever did this is going to hear from us. We will respond, united as a nation, going against terrorism. And the language that he used there would almost be the same gravity as if George W. Bush were to standing at ground zero were to say, instead of saying, we're going to hunt our, terror, our, our enemies down, if he were to say, let's love Al-Qaeda and let's pray for them right now as a nation. That makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? it? I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to love them. But this is the drasticness of Jesus' teaching. It goes contrary to our conventional way of thinking about people. Jesus is saying, love your captor. Pray for the one who wants you dead. This is revolutionary teaching. But these are the ways of Jesus. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples who had seen a history of enemies in their life that had tried to kill them. And this is exactly what Jesus would have said to King David in response to the preceding Psalms that were read. If Jesus were were, were alive 
in, in, in physical form and able to respond to David in his Psalms and what David wrote, um, Jesus, I believe, would have said, I understand, David, that this is hard. It's not just. And, and yes, my justice will ultimately be consummated. Okay? It's not just that people attack and kill and murder and hate you. But, but Jesus would say to King David, as he would say to us today, but not so among you. Not so for you. You must love your enemies. You must pray for those that would want to harm you. And so, when we look at this passage, many of us may not have experienced and be experiencing the true depth of Jesus' teaching. Like we've said before, I doubt that very many of us have true enemies that we're aware of. Faces and people that we know by name that that really that these disciples could have said, oh yeah, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. All those guys would like it if I was dead. We probably can't put people in those categories in our minds today. There may be a couple of you that could do that, but not very many of us. Still, the depth and the revolutionary nature of Jesus' teaching is still powerful for us because it shows us, His teaching shows us the extreme nature of unconditional love that Jesus calls for us to have towards every person on this planet. This is what makes Jesus' teaching hard to believe. The main thing that Jesus is teaching us is not necessarily just and only and entirely about loving our enemies. Although he is obviously saying that. But the deeper message that Jesus is trying to get across here to us, love like God loves. Love unconditionally. Love extravagantly. Love generously. Put aside hatred, anger, fear, and love the way God loves. This is the true nature of Jesus' teaching here in this passage. I use I have the picture of Bin Laden on there just as an example and an indictment against myself. Because this this is a man that I'm called to love because of Jesus' teaching. Instead of looking I mean, obviously there's justice that needs to occur. That's a part of God's plan that we have a just Resolution to all the things that have happened, the horrible atrocities that have occurred. But at my heart, is my heart motivated for wanting this man to come to know the realities of Jesus Christ in his life? Or is it to see him die along with the rest of people that want us dead? And so in order to really understand the full force, I think, of Jesus' teaching here... Um, we need to really start to identify our hatred and our anger and be aware that it is an inherent part of who we are as people. Um, and in our culture today, we have a lot of different ways that this is manifested um, in, our own, in, in, in the, way that we, uh, the way that we operate as people. Um, it's true that, that we don't do a very good job loving the way God loves in our culture. Um, I'm sure that in many respects we, we find, and as Americans, we find the need to help relate, raise relief efforts for, for uh, uh, children and, and families that are suffering the AIDS epidemic in, in Africa. Um, and, and, that's, and we should be doing that. Um, and we have situations where, uh, where we give to, the, to uh, the tsunami efforts that happened over in Indonesia in that area. And there was a huge out, outpouring of support and care and compassion for people. But typically speaking, that's not the norm in the way that we operate as people. Um, typically in our culture, we live by the motto of loving only those that love us back. Only those that treat us well. Only those that treat us right. 
who are worthy of our love. Our love is conditional. Um, I thought about a few areas um, this week that I wanted to share with you. The first one is uh, in the area of our own personal relationships. And um, you can go ahead and click on the next, there you go, next slide. Uh, Anger and fighting in our own personal relationships over disagreements, lack of trust, etc. The list goes on and on and on. Um, The struggles that that you and I have had, those of us in this room, in our families, just this past week. I mean, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you got in a fight with your spouse this past week? How many of you yelled at their kids this past week? Or had a situation that okay, somebody's being on. Uh, had a situation that was very, very difficult with a with a mom or a dad or an extended family member, um, and that really you could say was really rooted in a spirit of anger, a spirit of of, of, of jealousy, a spirit of selfishness. Um, we we love our family members when they love us or when they're nice to us, but when they're mean, we we hate, we get angry, we we want something bad to happen to them, like like they're trying to impose upon us. Uh, consider this picture here. Consider the amount of domestic violence in our country. Anywhere between 1 million and 3 million people, primarily women, every single year fall victim to domestic violence. This is in our country. I read about a man a couple of weeks, or was last week, a man and his brother-in-law that got into a fight over which political candidate they were going to support. And it ended up with one, the brother-in-law getting stabbed as a result of it. It, somebody has an agenda, has an idea, something that they want to push forward, and so as a result of that, there's a sense of anger and hatred in my position, and I'm right, and all this stuff, and so it turns into something that just is manif- manifests anger and hatred towards another individual, wanting for their demise, wanting for them to die. Speaking of politics, I've got a pretty, uh, I, I think, a, um, an accurate, for the most part, an accurate picture up here on the on the screen of, of our the candidates that are still in the political race today. And uh, I'm not bringing this up here for any way to, to endorse or support any candidate, just to show that, um, I guess to be fair, we could probably say that, that Governor Huckabee is still in the race, although I intentionally didn't put him in there just because I think mathematically he's not able to get the number of delegates to, to be considered a, a, um, a Republican. Um, he withdrew. He did. Okay. So that's that's okay. So that seems like that might be fairly recent. So these are the three candidates that are, uh, and I, I guess I could add Ralph Nader, who I think said he was going to be running for president um, as an independent. But if you look at politics today, it's standard practice to campaign negatively against another politician. It's standard practice in the way that we operate as a country, and the ensuing response from the recipient are typically fueled by anger and hatred back. You know, you lied about me, you said something wrong, and I'm going to go after you in a new way, you know, and, and, and try to bring you down. Um, I watched a, a political candidate uh, just this past couple of weeks ago come really unglued on television because of a supposed unfair attack by another candidate. And I just watched this individual, and, 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 and you could see on the face of this person just the, the fear and the anger and the, and the frustration. And it just you could see what was really blowing up was just a, an intense amount of anger or hatred towards another individual. At least that's what it appeared by watching this candidate. And, and let's, let's not you know, shy, around, uh, shy away from the fact that most of our anger is really rooted in hatred. It really is. I mean, in, unless we have a... Unless our anger is fueled by a righteousness from God, you know, that there's an injustice that's being done and we... we you know, something bad is happening to a child or something and justice is not prevailing and there's a, there's a sense of anger against that. 
I mean, that would be a justifiable righteous anger. But most of our anger is rooted in this spirit of hatred and animosity because it's, it's selfish-based. And it's, it's not, you're not doing what I want you to do. This is what I want to have happen. And, and it's not happening that way. And so I'm angry and I'm hateful and vengeful towards you because of it. Um, keeping on the same vein with politics, you look at political rallies, the, the hatred and the fear and the anger that are present as, uh, you know, as Republicans hate the Democrats and as Democrats hate the Republicans and as Independents hate the Democrats and the Republicans. And it just kind of goes all It's just this big cycle that goes on in our political system. Um, and even for me, you know, as, as I look at I'm very intrigued. I don't know how many of you are intrigued by politics, but I'm very intrigued by politics. Um, and sometimes too much so. And, uh, and, I, and I look at the three candidates that are, that are running here, and I have my own personal opinions on different candidates. And there's candidates up here that, that I either like or don't like, or I, that I would vote for or not vote for. And, 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 and typically what's, what happens in my own life is, is I find a candidate that I may not like as well, and so I, I look at them and I actually, I actually wish for bad things to happen to them. And I wish for, you know, that something bad would happen or that, you know, that they would, you know, that they would, you know, lose this state or lose that state or all these things would come unglued in their campaign. And, and I look at it and I step back and I go, wow, that's self-indicting. I'm supposed to talk about this on Sunday. Like my heart, it's based on this selfish predisposition towards wanting what I want and wanting other people to go down. Um, it's a self-indicting um, uh, uh, I guess you'd say um, a focus on anger and fear and hatred at the core of how we want to operate as people. Instead, what I should be doing is thinking towards political candidates and praying for them throughout the week. Wishing God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and compassion on their lives. That should be my focus, not whether or not they're going to win a state or not win a state or if their campaign is going to end or continue or go on or whatever. How about sports? This is another one. I mean, since when was it justifiable for two grown men to throw punches at each other on ice at a hockey game like this? Or if you saw something last year about the, one of the football players that actually stomped on someone's head, I think it was, on a football. Uh, at a, I mean, just, just ridiculous, the this, this stuff that happens. Or if you, you know, baseball players that get into a fight after having a baseball thrown at them, you know, 95 miles an hour at their head. Actually, that might be justifiable when I think about it. I think I would probably rush the mound too if I had a baseball thrown at me that fast. But I struggle in this area as well. I love, I'm a sports fanatic. I love sports. And I'm a, some of you that know me know that I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan. And, um, and as a result, and I didn't just become a Red Sox fan because they've won. I've been a fan before then. Um, but I, I, you know, I use the language of hating the Yankees. And sometimes I will watch Yankee games just to watch them lose. You know? And, we, and it is, it's, it's kind of humorous, but what, what's built... See, it, it's fueling a spirit inside of me that is wanting something bad to happen to someone else to promote my own positions, my own agenda. That is where that spirit... I think that Jesus is speaking to us here. At the core of how we operate, do we have the kind of love that God has? An unconditional, sacrificial love for all people couple other things I've noticed. TV shows. I'm just kind of going through the list here. And I don't mean to highlight just Survivor. But every once in a while I will watch a reality TV show with my wife. And I occasionally enjoy watching them. But it's interesting if you watch television shows, the way the networks promote them. Nearly every one, in every one of these shows, there is at least one villainous character. 
You know, there's somebody that the, either whether or not the, the show portrays them as such, or if they just really are a horrible person. I, you know, it's hard to know, but they, they, there's a portrayal of individuals, and, and you and you actually long to see them get kicked off the show, or something bad. Like it's like, oh, that's too bad they broke their leg. They've got to leave. Oh, isn't that horrible? You know, you, you have this. There's this sense of animosity, and the networks build into it because they know that's what sells. People love to watch TV programs where. You know, there's a there's a villain that's a part of it, and and that villain is succeeding. Um, think about when you're when you drive. I mean, this is an indicting one, obviously as well. Interesting picture there. But um, how about you know when we're driving in our cars, the feelings that well up inside of you when you see a bumper sticker that you disagree with, or when you get cut off in traffic, and then that person that cuts you off, you know, does something questionable to you because they want to say that you were the one that was at fault. I mean this. Maybe it's just me, but these, I'm, I'm tell, these are things I struggle with on a, it seems like a weekly basis. Um, and even in our churches, this is probably the most indicting, I think. Um, too often, out of fear of our culture and the new world that we live in, we find it acceptable to criticize those that are not followers of Jesus. We find it acceptable to look down on people because they don't play by our rules. We also find ways to criticize other Christian people that are pushing the envelope and thinking about new ways to expand the kingdom of, of God and the kingdom of Jesus here in this culture and this world. And we've created divisions in our churches where we have blogs written all over the place about how evil this segment of the church is and how, you know, how too conservative this segment is. And, and there's just this spirit of anger that doesn't get anything done. We've forgotten how to agree to disagree. Instead, we grow to despise each other and cast judgment. I've personally seen this firsthand, and it has been harmful and hurtful. Um, too often, I think as Christians, for those of us that are Christians here in this room, we have become more concerned with being right than living out a life of love, compassion, graciousness, and generosity towards all people which seems to be, using political language, seems to be Jesus' stump speech all throughout the Gospels. And he's the guy we're following. He's the guy that we want to model ourselves after. And so, as you can see, we have a hard time loving, period, let alone loving a terrorist, a serial killer, or a rapist. We, we just have a hard time loving as people. Um, yet Jesus, once again, offers us a new way. He says, once again, love like God loves. Once again, this passage isn't so much about loving enemies as it, is, as it appears. It certainly is that. But at the core of what Jesus is teaching is this concept of loving as God loves. Let's look at the passage one more time as we close this out this morning. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Translation, so that you can be like the Father. I mean, using the terminology of the day, when, you, when Jesus is talking about sons of your Father in heaven, there's a very clear implication to being like God. Jesus even got in trouble with this a lot of times by calling God his Father. And they, you know, they wanted to kill him because he was equating himself with God by doing so. And so when he uses this language here, he's saying... Do this so that you may be sons. So you will be like the Father. You will love and be like God in this way. He clarifies and he continues. 
This is how God loves. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God blesses, loves, cares for all people, even those who hate Him. The sun rises on all of us. The sun rises in Afghanistan and Iraq and in the Middle East. The sun rises in America, South America, Argentina. The rain comes. God replenishes the earth. He allows us to drink water. He allows the sun to to, to cause growth so that we can eat. And there's vegetation. I mean, we are blessed, every person on this planet, by the graciousness and the love of God on a daily basis. And Jesus is saying, look around you. We are all recipients of God's love. He goes on, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Don't the people that you despise do the same thing that you're saying is a good thing to do? And if you greet only your brothers, what good? Uh, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? He's saying, basically, if you want to live according to the old kingdom, okay, just continue to operate that way. I'm offering a new way. Don't be just like them. Take it a step further. Jesus says, once again, love like God loves. Look at verse 48 to close. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't believe here that Jesus is making an argument here about Christian perfection. But I think in context, if you look through contextually what he's saying here, he is, he's saying, be like the Father here. Be like God. Let your love be perfect, impartial, impartial and unconditional. Be perfect. Be like your Father in this love. In short, love like God loves. And so to close this morning, I know for me, in just sharing this message with you, it's been indicting and it's been difficult. And it's been difficult preparing it this week. Um, I'd like to encourage each of us to respond to what God may be saying to you as a result of this. I know that I'm... Um, I know some tangible ways that I'm going to respond um, to this as well. On your seat, or under your seat, Dave, did we get the cards there? Uh, in, okay, if you look at the seat in front of you, there should be a 3 by 5 card and a pen. Um, and if you don't see one in front of you, maybe um, wait till your neighbor gets it and then take it from them. No, that wouldn't be good. Um, grab, a, grab a 3 everybody, Hopefully everybody can get a hold of a 3 by 5 card that's in front of them. And, and what I'd like you to do is just take a hold of that card and hold it in your hand right now. And, and by way of response, during the time that, that Dave and, and, the, and the band come back up and spend some time leading us um, in worship to God, I want uh, to ask you to complete the following statement on the card. Jesus, please replace my anger, hatred, and fear with love for... Dot, dot, dot. To whom do you need to write down on this card? A spouse? A neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a politician, a figure, somebody that you don't even know personally, that you just conveniently enjoy not liking, a father, maybe a mother. I'd like to encourage you to take some time, as Dave, as Dave and the band uh, lead us, uh, to write down, to think through, and pray through who it is that God really feel like God is asking you to write down in this card. He is asking you and I to buy into his revolutionary teaching to love those that we are struggling to love for whatever reason. And I would encourage you as a result of this card, put it somewhere this week that you can see it. I know for me, I'm going to take my card and put it on my, which could be a little dangerous, but put it uh, you know, right, right up underneath my 
speed odometer or whatever in my car, um, which may not work because I don't always look at how fast I'm driving. But, but it, if it's there, it's a visual image where I, when I see someone's name, I can pray for that person. I can pray for God's best for that person. I can pray that if they don't know Jesus, that they would, and that God would use me in some way to help make an influence and an impact in, in a genuine, loving, compassionate, caring way in their lives. So put it in a place where you can see it as a reminder to pray for that individual. And finally, for some of you, I was talking with Dave this week, um, based on what he, the message he brought last week, some of you might not be able to write down someone because you still are holding anger and hatred towards someone and you frankly don't want to forgive. You don't want to be released from that. You want to continue to be angry and upset and hateful towards someone because what they did to you was so despicable. I, I can't imagine what that may or may not be. I, I'm not in your shoes. I, I can only imagine how difficult that can be. So I don't want to seem trite in this in this uh, response. But but I would encourage you, in light of Dave's message from last week, to ask God. Ask God. Just take the step to ask God to show you how deep His love for you really is. And and, and my prayer for you is that as you experience God's depth of His love for you. That you would then, you and I would be able to um, to grow to to love unconditionally and graciously towards the people that have hurt us the most. And so you may not want to write anything down on that card. You may not be ready to to say Jesus place might replace my anger, hatred, and fear, and uh, with love for this person. Maybe you just need to write down a, a couple of things that you feel God is showing you about His love for you. And maybe that's the response. Um, that God is leading you towards this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your teaching here. I know in a lot of ways I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to me. I know it's discouraging because I feel like I try to love like God loves and it's like a daily battle. But Jesus, I ask that um, that you would work through me and through my life by the power of your Holy Spirit to develop that God-like love inside of me for all people. That it would be unconditional and compassionate and gracious and generous. I pray that for each person here this morning as well, Father. Would you help us to love like you?